This is Stories of Strength by MuscleTech, personal and inspirational tales that redefine strength. Welcome back to another edition of Stories of Strength, a podcast where we share personal and inspirational tales that redefine strength. I'm your host, Jay Cardiello, and with me today is someone who is a true inspiration. Joining us is Sean Weiss, who you might remember as Greg Goldberg in the 1992 Disney comedy The Mighty Ducks. Sean hasn't had an easy go at life since his stint as a child star. However, he's on a path to recovery and is here today to share his story with us. I'm so excited to have Sean here today. Sean, welcome to the show. It's great to have you today. Jay, nice to be with you. Sean, before we get into your career, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up? Yeah, my childhood, I grew up in New Jersey in a town called Montville, New Jersey. You grew up in New Jersey. And I actually just went back for the first time in probably 30 years, two weeks ago. And I got to say, it is... Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it's a lot smaller than I remember. I think your mind has a tendency to <laughs> sort of make things larger than they were. So it, everything's a lot smaller than I remember, yes. but it's so beautiful there. I really forgot how just what a gorgeous place it was. Like there's all these undulations and there's these rivers and streams and brooks floating in and out everywhere. I mean, it's just really I'm happy that I grew up in such a nice place. Now that I've been recently traveling across the country, I've got a lot of little small towns to compare it to. And I got to say, Montville was really a beautiful mm-hmm. little town. So anyway, I, uh, that's where I was uh, born. And my parents met each other. My dad was a dry cleaner, and he had a dry cleaning route where he would pick up clothes, clean them, drop them off. And apparently my mother was the housekeeper at one of the houses that he used to uh, pick up clothes and deliver clothes. So he ended up getting into (laughs) a relationship with the maid, which uh, I'm kind of a little proud of that because he, he, at some level he has been kind of a pretty smooth guy, right? to be the dry cleaning guy and and take home the housekeeper. Anyway, so I had four older brothers and sisters, and they were from a different dad. They all existed long before I came here. And uh, it was just a Mm -hmm. nice place to grow up in New Jersey. And when I was around five or six, I guess I was kind of a precocious little kid. I used to mouth off to adults And I would say things like, how's your sex life and things like that. So (laughs) people like my mother would tell me I was being rude. But to other people, this exhibited some kind of quality that needed to be on television. So really, I would just like I, I remember I would get in trouble for like giving the middle finger to adults. And next thing I knew. This thing that had been getting me into trouble had now gotten me on a Jello pudding commercial with Bill Cosby after my mom took me to see a manager who was doing a talent scout at a hotel in New York City. And uh, I think she had to pay a few hundred dollars. But anyway, it worked out. My talent was scouted and I started doing commercials literally instantly. And that led to me coming out to Los Angeles when I was uh, younger and I did shows like Charles in Charge and Webster and Empty Mm -hmm. Nest. These are all shows that anybody, I don't know, Jay, do you recognize the sound of, do you know any of those shows like Webster, Charles? Yes, I do. Yes, of course. I did things like that. And eventually my lucky streak led me to an audition for the Mighty Ducks movie, Mm -hmm. which wasn't a trilogy at the time. It was just a movie that I found out in later life was set up to be a commercial for the hockey team. A lot of people think it was the movie spawned the hockey team, but I found out they had the hockey team and the movie was a very clever marketing idea by, I guess it was Michael Eisner. And that is a great idea, right? Like excellent commercial. Yeah. And so I did these Mighty Ducks (laughs) movies and that worked out wonderfully. 
And so I, I guess we made, we started when I was 13 and we made one every two or three years. And I did some other movies, but that was like, you know, my, <laughs> the Mighty Ducks movies to this day, I've got people coming up to me telling me what a positive and powerful impact it had on their lives. And I really just, I didn't really know that, mm-hmm. that those movies had the kind of fan base that it does until recently when I ran into my troubles and was really brought back to life and supported by this fan base that I kind of, you know, I knew people watch the movies, but I didn't know really the kind of embedded uh, sense of nostalgia and sort of just, I didn't know how, how emotionally tied to these movies people were until now. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that was really my story in a very shortened, you know, abridged version. Well, I'm from New Jersey as well. I'm from a town called Cedar Grove. It's lies adjacent to Montclair. So I know, I know where you are from. I it's, knew uh, it. You the know, great town you're from. <laughs> Jay, I didn't want to be, uh, what, what would you call somebody that's like prejudiced to a geographical place? I didn't want to be a geographicist. But when I heard you say hello right <laughs> off the bat, I said, this is a Jersey guy I'm talking to. So it's nice to know that well, I, can, that I still have it. it. Yeah, I got the, you still have it in your voice and I, I can still hear it. Well, that's great. I really didn't know that I had a New Jersey accent, but thank you so much for noticing it. So it's 1992, the Mighty Ducks, the smash hit, and your face is on the movie poster. How did your life, Sean, change after that? Well, I'd been in TV and commercials and stuff already. So it didn't change that drastically. But Mm -hmm. in 1992, that movie poster, my face ended up being the poster for the movie, right? It's me on the, on the cover of the thing with the bubble gum. And at the local theater where we went to watch the movie, they had about a 15 foot giant cardboard cutout of this, you know, the, the movie poster, <laughs> but a, a cutout of it. And yeah. I don't know how it happened, but that thing ended up in the living room of my house. I don't know if they gave it to me no or way. I <laughs> took it. Or I don't know if it came out the back door or the front door is what I'm saying, Jay, but it ended up, <laughs> it ended up in my place. It was amazing, man. Like I wasn't really a hockey fan per se. I liked baseball and basketball mm-hmm. and football. And when I got those movies, I was like, God, why in the world would you have put me in a hockey movie instead of any of those other sports? But after making those movies, I really fell in love with the game because we just met so many of the, of the NHL players and we were in a lot of pro locker rooms and it just... Mm. I ended up falling in love with hockey. So I became a fan of the sport. That's definitely one thing that changed. Are you still a fan today of the sport? Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a Ducks fan. I want to be a Devils fan, but I kind of have to root for oh, the Ducks. Oh, you are a Ducks fan. That's- yeah, I, got, I have to. <laughs> I can understand that. Growing up, I, I was a big hockey fan. I was a Devils fan. Well, it's not easy to be a Devils fan, you know? They just don't win a lot. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, they don't win a lot. So after you found success with the first two Ducks films, was it difficult landing challenging roles that were outside the Goldberg and the John Brom type of character? Not really, because I was just kind of known as like the chubby kid that was funny in the business. And I think my parts just kind of, Mm -hmm. I kind of got typecasted as that. And at the time, I didn't see that as a bad thing because uh, I enjoyed doing those Mm -hmm. roles. And a lot of comedy parts used to come my way. So really, after being in that movie, it just made it a lot easier for me to get other work because, you know, people wanted to hire the the guy was the goalie in the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. You were I saw the movie. You were were funny. Very funny. So, Sean, let's talk about the film Heavyweights for a moment. At the time, you said the film was about being yourself and accepting what you are. In hindsight, it feels like Hollywood took a great leap forward into the realm of body positivity and body diversity on screen. What was it like working on that film, and how did it affect your own healthy self-respect? You know, I was just thinking about that recently, Jay, how evolved 
everything is when it comes to entertainment and the people that are, you know, famous now. Like, I really want to figure out what I want to say here because I was thinking about this recently. I'm I'm kind of just mm-hmm. vamping with you as I figure out my answer because I've been thinking about yeah, this sure. point that I'm trying to make here, but I haven't really formulated it. I guess what I'm trying to say is people are a lot more tolerant now in what they will accept in forms of in, in, in their entertainment. I felt like when I was heavier that there weren't a lot of parts for me. And I'm pretty sure that that's the case. Yeah. There just aren't a lot of roles in Hollywood for people that aren't, you know, it's very much a show business and how you look is yes. very much a part of what you're worth as an artist, unfortunately, sometimes. It would be great if uh, all that you needed to be successful as an actor was the ability to act, but that's just not how it is, right? Like, you have to look a certain way. And there are definitely people that are character actors and they play the roles that aren't the leading man, leading woman type. But even those guys are kind of good looking, (laughs) In Hollywood, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like even the not so good looking guys, like the good looking guys. So, but I have noticed how much it's changed. And people have all kinds of confidence now that I didn't used to see 20 years ago. People are much more comfortable now in their own skin. And companies that used to just only hire a certain type of model are now, like, these companies are now manufacturing to fit other sizes now. So I feel like those models that are supermodels, they probably have a hard time getting work now. That's kind of, you know... Yeah, you're so right about that. You're so right. So it's coming along. Like, I think social media has probably had a lot to do with that because we put up our pictures and our friends are usually seeing our pictures and they're our friends. So, of course, they're going to put like in our picture of our us not looking great in our bathing suit. Mm-hmm. So that might, you know, make me feel more confident about things when I shouldn't be. Yeah. You said some really poignant stuff, especially like when you think about the models of today, even like the plus size models being on cover of sports illustrated growing up, we would never have seen that. It's times have definitely changed. People are embracing that people are being more proud of who they are and, and, and the body that God gave them. So it, it, it's nice to see that the industry and the entertainment industry has changed that way. Yeah, I agree. It's not a swing that you, we would have expected to see, but... No, not at all. I think companies, uh, big corporations, have put more of an emphasis on wanting us to feel good about ourselves. Maybe they feel like we'll yeah. spend more when we're in a good mood. <laughs> I'm not sure what their <laughs> logic was, but... It definitely seems as if they're more conscious about us wanting to feel better. Yeah, it is so true. Things have definitely changed. I I always say social media has definitely had an impact on that. People are more accepting to put their pictures out more than non-makeup pictures, the the pictures of plus-size models and, and, and social media. So social media has done a huge push for this, and I think it really has pushed the envelope with the entertainment industry. So I don't really know how to feel about it, but... I feel like the movie Heavyweights may have had an effect on, like, uh, maybe a lot of the country having type 2 diabetes. Maybe Heavyweights might have been responsible for a lot of the the country having type 2 diabetes. I say that because I'm finding out that a lot of people that were heavy and, you know, as when they were younger— and that felt bad about themselves or had depression or whatever, they saw that movie and it it helped them through that. Like it showed them that it was cool to be a fat kid or it wasn't such a bad thing. And so I hope that kids didn't feel like it was okay then to, <laughs> to uh, overeat because they saw us doing that. I'd be depressed if the movie had that effect on people. Yeah, I understand. I understand. So, Sean, I want to jump now into more of a personal inside of you. Take us through hitting rock bottom. What finally pushed you to decide to seek help? 
Well, I decided to seek help because I got in trouble and I met a judge who was like, do you want to go to jail or do you want to seek help? <laughs> so the decision was she made it very easy for me. And mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that was I'm just grateful that the state of California gave me a chance to do that because I was going to be a felon. I was going to have a, a felony on my record. Yeah. So, yeah, when I was sitting in the in the jail cell, it just was very obvious to me that I was getting a chance to fix my life instead of just wasting away in a jail cell and then probably just getting out of the jail cell and and ending up back where I was anyway. So, yeah, when I made the decision to go to drug court, I really didn't know how long of an agreement I was making. I probably thought yeah. it was uh, three or six months that I'd have to stay clean for, and then I'd be back out on the street running amok. And I guess about 40 days, 30 or 40 days into uh, residential treatment, it just dawned on me, it sunk in that the way I was acting was not going to get me anywhere. And these people were actually giving me a chance to kind of unsink my ship. And if I didn't take this chance, I might not have another one come anytime soon. Yeah. So when I got in trouble, I was very sick. I was probably weeks or months away from dying. I had uh, pneumonia. Uh -huh. And I was just, I had all kinds of viruses. Like I was just an infected mess and I had, I was just horrible. And it was in the, you know, when you're in, when you're outdoors in the summertime, that's one thing. But when it's wintertime and you're outdoors, it's rough. And I was actually, before I got in trouble, I definitely, I had this moment where I made a promise to myself. I was like, no matter what happens, you're not going to spend another winter out here on these streets. And I was doing a lot of praying. It was, I remember Chris, it was the Christmas Eve. So I got, a, I got in trouble in January. So I remember the Christmas Eve before all this happened, before I got into treatment. It was raining. I was outside and I couldn't find shelter. And I was in, in this shopping center where there was like a, it's like a 7-Eleven plaza. And I couldn't find any shelter. It was raining so hard. It was so cold. I had nothing. I was dope sick. I had no money. And I remember praying to God, like, can you please just end this right now? So that's the kind of shape I was in, where I'm praying to God to end my life because it had just become so awful. And that was on Christmas Eve. And I guess that's why it's, you know, it burned a hole in my memory because it was on Christmas Eve. Sure. And so why do you think it can be hard for people to look for help? Oh, God. I mean, look, you know, if you're looking for help, that's one thing. But, you know, <laughs> I was looking for help and I couldn't even find help. So here he had a guy that wants treatment and it just wasn't available to me. That is kind of the sad part about my story is that I ended up where I did and I was trying to get clean. I'll put some giant air quotes over trying. I wanted to. I didn't want to be on the street anymore and I didn't want to be on drugs yeah. anymore. And if the resources that were made available to me eventually were made available to me earlier, I totally would have taken them. It's hard to get clean out there because, <laughs> so say you want to get clean, there's, in California, there's one or two state-run places, and, I mean, they're just pitiful. They're not places that you want to hang out. So it becomes an easy excuse for someone, mm. you know? Like, yeah, you can say, well, look, if you want to get clean, you'll do no matter what, but that's not, it's not as easy as that all the time because you want to get clean and then, you know, you might start to feel sick and then that'll change your whole, your whole mentality. So definitely it became kind of like my mission after I got out of treatment to try to make available the resources that I had to make that available to other people that are homeless, 
and that don't have insurance. In this country, if you have some good insurance, you're pretty, you're okay if you want to get into some treatment. That's not a problem at all. It's for the people that don't have insurance. And, you know, like so many people made it very easy for me to get clean. For instance, the residential treatment place that I went to, they scholarshiped me completely, which I don't know. I imagine their treatment is probably around forty or 50000 a month. I was there for three months on a total scholarship. The owners are just, they're just wonderful guys, and they happen to be Mighty Ducks fans, thanks God. So when they heard I was in trouble, they are like, <laughs> yeah, send him over here. We don't care if he farts or anything. And then, uh, so, you know, <laughs> I, I was able to spend 90 days in, like, a beautiful brand-new house with a jacuzzi on a king-size bed, you know, on a, watching a giant flat-screen TV all day with a gourmet chef cooking two meals for me every day. So really, I just had to go along for the ride. Like, as long as I didn't jump any fences, you know, and try to run out and score, I really had it made. And uh, I kind of think that it'd be the same way with other people. Like, when I was homeless and I was on the street, if you would have walked up to me and said, listen, do you want to get clean? I would have probably, I don't know what I would have told you, but if you just said, listen, you can come kick it at this place in a king size bed with all these amenities, it would have definitely made a difference. So unfortunately, but I think definitely the level of luxury at the place that I went made a huge difference in just in terms of how comfortable I was. And it, made it easy for me to stay there. So <laughs> unfortunately, it would be great if someone's earnest desire to get clean was just enough to get through the process, but we need help. You know, addicts need help. Yeah. And um, I was just very fortunate to have gotten a lot of it. Do you want to re-ask the second part of that question? I'm just getting... I'll be honest with you, I don't normally talk about these things or even really think about these things. So when I get into a conversation with you like this, I'm having all these, you know, things uh, pop into my head that I'm just not normally uh, thinking about. And I suppose there is some level of PTSD, not in like a bad way where it's going to trigger me or or I'm uncomfortable in any way, but... Typically, I don't have as hard a time, you know, maintaining a train of thought. But, you know, it it is what it is. It's nice to be getting to know you very personally, Jay. (laughs) We hope you're enjoying Stories of Strength brought to you by MuscleTech. Whether you're an elite athlete, weekend warrior, or just trying to stay healthy, MuscleTech believes in growing stronger together. Discover products formulated to help you achieve your strength and fitness goals at Walmart, GNC, and everywhere you find premium supplements. Sean, you're doing doing an amazing job, Sean, and just what's going on is that our listeners, you never know when there's going to be someone on the other end of the, listening to this who needs help or someone who basically that you spark rapport in with someone that says, you know what, he's just like me and I can do this. So your words are not only very poignant, they're very supporting of our listeners. You know, I've been homeless. I've been homeless. I've been, I've been bankrupt. I've been, been sexually abused. I've broken my spine. I've Felled out of colleges. I've, I've done it all. And I'm a survivor of sexual abuse that caused me to go homeless at one point. And, you know, when people listen to that, they say, well, he's just like me. I understand that he's just like me. There's somebody out there that's just like me. So your words are not only very comforting, they're very supportive for our listeners who may be out there and they say, wow, he's just like me. I can turn my life around. So I commend you for going back into that. I commend you for your words and I commend you for taking the time today to feel personal about this story because that's what these are. They're personal stories about people who've succeeded in life. And I just like to commend you on that. 
Thank you, Jay. I really do feel like, in general, people have a hard time feeling bad for drug addicts. I feel like unless you have one in your family or you know one or have been one, it's hard to have empathy for a drug addict. It just seems like this is someone who did all this on their own doing, and it just seems like a... So I feel like now that I've come out the other end, I do feel a responsibility to help any drug addict I can. So I mm-hmm. don't know necessarily how that's going to be. I am told that, you know, people find inspiration in my recovery. And if that's true, if there can be any good come out of, like, I suffered a lot out there. You know, I was out there, it's hard to believe, I, I guess almost four years. And I don't know where the acting, like playing the role of the junkie ended and the suffering began, really. Because at first, it, this was, you know, sort of like I had gotten into yoga and I I was just reading all these uh, all these uh, yogi books and I kind of gotten into the the idea of renunciation. And so as mm. I was losing every single thing in my life, I sort of looked at it as repentance almost. Uh, maybe yes. that was my way of not feeling victimized. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I kind of just became o- okay with it at first because you couldn't get any less likely of someone to end up a, a drug addict on the street than I was. When I was in sixth grade, I put on a, uh, me and another guy, a classmate, we put on a dare assembly the rest of our class so you know drug abuse resistance education the cop that ran the dare program for our county and and our school his name was officer monk and he used to come to my house and have coffee with my parents so i was like an anti-drug guy really and so how i ended up on the street is something that really should be looked at you know I mean, definitely after a thousand hours of therapy, I've been able to identify my problem, which was obviously a mental illness, more specifically, very severe depression. So mental illness really is what led me to the drug addiction. I really lost my mind after a relationship that I was in didn't work out. And I lost my mind, like, I don't think, like, in a normal way. I don't think average men go this crazy when a woman leaves them. But I just couldn't breathe, and I couldn't think about things, and I just went nuts. And the very first time I took a hit of uh, crystal meth, that feeling went away completely. That pressure that was on on my chest yeah, went away instantly. And it was the first time I'd had like a moment to myself, probably in months. So in a lot of ways, the uh, the drugs that I was using kind of saved me. I don't know really what I would have, if they weren't there to kind of alleviate my depression, I'm not sure how it would have manifested. No, you... you what um, a buzz You kill, said some very huh? strong Sorry, words. You yeah. and I are... are no, 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 not a bus code at all. You, you and I, besides being New Jersey, have a lot in common. So I went through a major divorce and drank myself into stupors every night and then went and wound up homeless. So I, I can completely empathize with you. And it's nothing that we should be ashamed of. It's something that we should basically now speak to people. You know, I work now in drug and alcohol rehabs and we bring in former addicts because it, what it does, it creates rapport. And that's one of the big things that you have is you have the ability to have rapport with people who are suffering, who are trying to find strength, who are seeking help. And as I said, we have listeners that are seeking that. And that's why they turn on to the show to say, hey, listen, I, I want to make a difference in my life. I'm trying to find strength. And to hear you, Sean, say these words that are so poignant really resonates with a lot of people. Well, I'm glad if I can be helpful, man. What does strength mean to you? I guess strength is the discipline and ability to to do something that you don't want to do in a nutshell 
Mm. That's uh, what strength is for me, because when I think about my own life and the times that I consider uh, myself being weak, it's in those instances where I'm Mm -hmm. just, you know, doing what's easy and not, you know, doing the hard thing. Yeah. If you were to go back to your younger self and want to teach that younger self a lesson, what do you think that lesson would be and what would you teach him? Oh, that's a good question. So if I were going to talk to my younger self, oh, man, I could, oh, boy, I need to get out a notepad and a pencil. First of all, (laughs) don't spend your money. (laughs) Respect money a little bit. (laughs) I mean, I spent money on the dumbest things, Jay. I probably spent $15,000. I had a collection of compact discs. You remember those, dude? Like... Remember what they used to look Compact like? Is, yes, I did. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I had them. Yes. I had them lined up from the floor to the ceiling. Ten thousand of these things. I didn't know uh, Steve Jobs was going to make an iPod. I didn't know he was going to do that. So definitely, <laughs> just respect money. Not don't spend it, but just respect it. You know, I used to make mm-hmm. money hand over fist. Yeah. Like the last uh, when I I did a show called. The Tony Danza show. I believe that was 1999. And I was getting paid Mm $60,000 an episode. That's for five days of work, you know, nine to five. So I just, it's not that I didn't appreciate it, but I definitely took it for granted. And I just thought that would always happen. I just thought that was normal. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't realize like, wow, this is amazing. I used to complain I remember calling my agent up and complaining because I had to drive like an hour and a half each way to work in traffic. And I was calling him up to bitch about the traffic. I'm like, how am I supposed to enjoy my life when I'm in traffic for three hours every day? And I can just, I remember the guy just being like, kid, you just got to shut up (laughs) and just enjoy that traffic. So anyway, uh, definitely. Okay. So, okay. And then, so, you know, when <laughs> there's really nothing I can tell my younger self, because in a lot of ways, I was like, <laughs> I wasn't smarter when I was younger, but I had my shit together. Like, I was, you know, when I was 14 or 15, a lot of times I look back at myself and I'll just try to copy how I was because I had goals that were, I didn't think anybody could uh, stop me. I had uh, things I wanted to accomplish. I had all the confidence in the world and I didn't doubt never crept in when, when it came to something that I wanted, I just assumed that it it would happen. And now uh, that I'm 40, I I wish that I could have that back. You know, you know, now when I want to get something done, all of a sudden 10 obstacles that are going to come in my way are the first things that pops in my mind. So in a lot of ways, my younger self could probably write a letter to me and teach my older self a lesson. And then, oh, I would definitely tell myself to, well, this is just going to sound like I'm a hornball, but I was going to say to have uh, as many girlfriends as I possibly could. Is that okay to say on muscle tech? Probably not. Glad. No, that's okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, Yeah, because (laughs) I, uh, you only live once, right? (laughs) It's true. It's true. I would have because I mean I could have really if quantity was my thing. If that was the thing that I was after, I had a window there of life where Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying, Jay. It's like. You can only be the high school quarterback for so many years before you have to graduate. <laughs> but I had a, I had so a stretch true. there where I could have really <laughs> chalked up some numbers if that was my thing, but I didn't. <laughs> now, Sean, you you recently landed a role in, in the upcoming film, Jesus Revolution. Can you tell us a little bit about that role? Yeah, these guys, this is an, is an incredible movie, okay? I didn't even know that this really happened. I read the script, and I was like, wait a second, mm-hmm. what? This really happened? So this guy, Lionel Frisbee, and his buddy Greg Laurie, in the 70s, these uh, they were taking these hippies into the Pirate's Cove, which is like this little section of the ocean out here, 
and they would take him out and baptize mm-hmm. thousands of hippies at a time. And these two guys were doing it because there was nowhere else where these hippies could go to church to get God. So they kind of started their own church. And this movie's kind of a just a retelling of, of that story. It's called Jesus Revolution. And it's I just can't believe that that this that it really happened. And it was really cool. These guys, there's a part in the movie where there's a uh this kind of disabled veteran who's a bit of a drug addict and he's seeking help and he wants God. And so he ends up getting that. And at the end of the movie, he's clean and sober. And so the filmmakers, I guess they saw my story and they thought that I'd be, it'd be cute to have me Mm -hmm. play that role. So I agreed with them. I was so happy to like be back in the movies again. And it was great. I thought that there, like, I didn't, for some reason, I thought the movie business was in like a recession, but there is no recession. I promise you. <laughs> I went out to uh, Alabama and they put me up in like the nicest hotel in Alabama and they gave me a <laughs> rental car. I was like, what is this really happening? Because I have a very small role, but they really, you wouldn't know that by if you saw my hotel room. Amazing. So, yeah, I'm trying to get in some more movies, Jay. I'll be honest with you. That is great. Yeah, it's good work, man. It is good work. If well, that's good. I'm, I was going to say, you, you got baptized on set. Is that correct? I did. I didn't even know really what I was getting into until, like, after it happened, man. People were coming up to me, like, and they were like, do you, you understand who that was, like, what just happened to you? So the gravity of it really is kind of still sinking in to me. And as far as me getting baptized, mm-hmm. like, you know, I meant it. My heart was open. I uh, am definitely accepting all blessings and all angels. So I definitely, you know, you're supposed to be asking for a certain thing when you get baptized. And I was asking for that thing. And I'm, you know, definitely ready to accept it. That is great. I was baptized uh, April 1st, 1996. Oh, wow. Okay. When so I was baptized. You were, uh, how old would that have made you? About 13? Or tw- no. About 25. Oh, about 25. 25. Yeah. That's when I became a Christian. Nice. So, um, yeah. But I noticed they do it to babies. I know, I'm confused as to how a, a child is supposed sure, yes. to. Like, how is a child supposed so in, to understand in the, in, that uh, the the relationship he's making. Well, that's in the Catholic faith. In the Catholic faith, you're baptized for original sin and born again oh, Christian see. or evangelical Christians, we get, we, uh, we get baptized later in life when we have additional more sin of what God is in the relationship. Exactly. Right. Additional sin. Yes. Additional sin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was great, man. Greg Laurie it was a super nice guy. And, Following uh, my baptism out there at Pirates Cove, I went out to see him do his thing at his church in uh, Orange County, and he was just amazing, man. Like, he makes the Bible and the church very interesting and very entertaining. I don't know that it's supposed to be entertaining, but he was fascinating to watch. Like, I could I could look at him do that every Sunday. Oh, that is great. It's a very lively book. And when it's, it's interpreted many different ways and when it's read by a person who has a lot of passion, it's, the stories are told very differently. So I can totally understand when someone gets really behind it and really gets excited about it, how, you know, you say like, what the Bible is just, no, it's a very, very interesting book. And if, if it's told correctly, it's definitely going to have a very impactful meaning for someone in life. Well, that's what I need. I need a pastor to really bring the words to life because when I try to read it, it just, I, I have, it doesn't, I can't get it to make sense. And mm-hmm. I just don't know whether it's a matter of my reading comprehension or my retention, but it's just, it doesn't, no matter how many times I read it, it doesn't sink in. So when a guy like Greg Laurie talks, you know, goes over a chunk and starts interpreting it and talking about it and making sense of the text, it's like very exciting because it's like, oh my God, this is like the, I can, there's a whole new hobby I can get into. <laughs> I can really get yes, into this. Yes, it's so true. It's so true. So I have one more question I'd like to ask, a very poignant question. What legacy do you want to leave behind, Sean? I guess ever since I was a young kid, I wanted to be known as somebody who made funny movies and 
made people laugh. And uh, my dad mm. always at a young age, he got me to enjoy the fact that I was funny because he would always reiterate that laughter is medicine and that when people laugh, it actually does have a healing power. And so I oftentimes thought that even though I wasn't smart enough to like go to med school, that, that this was my kind of poor man's way of making the world a little better by just giving some people some laughs. So I guess just if people remember me as somebody that was very funny and very helpful, like a guy that would do anything for somebody that needed it, I'd be satisfied with that. Well, it came across in the show today. You, you truly helped a lot of people, including myself. So I, I commend you and I thank you so much for today. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Jay. That's so nice of you. So I do have these three things to talk about. Now would be a good time, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the first thing that's very important to me, and it's important for me to talk about because I feel like it can be helpful to others, is the impact that the 12-step program had on me. I tend to take flack from people. I get criticism because I don't really go to a lot of meetings. I did 80. I had to go to 80 for court. So after I did that 80, I was like, you know, I'm going to take a break for a while. But going to the meetings and the AA community, it, it isn't really a prominent part of my recovery program. To that point, I don't mm -hmm. have a sponsor. So a lot of people would criticize the way I participate in the AA program. For me, it was just all about the 12 steps. When I was in a residential treatment, they didn't make us do the 12 steps, but they exposed it to us. And any addict that wants to get clean, whether it be drugs or alcohol, any addict that spends any kind of time looking over the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it becomes an obvious choice that, hey, this is, I should do this. So I started doing the 12 steps and I did step one through probably, I don't know, five or six within the first 20 minutes. I was ready to get clean. Um, it was very easy for me to admit that um, my life had become unmanageable. Boom, got that step. Was I willing to turn my power over to a power greater than me that could help me? Absolutely. So there's two steps in as long as it took for me to say them. And really the, the steps that, you know, what, what the 12 steps are, in my humble opinion, no, really what it is, they're an instruction manual on how to have a spiritual awakening. Because the last step, it says, after having had a spiritual awakening through having gone through these steps. So really what Bill and Bill, the guys who made that program, what they're trying to get you to do is to have a spiritual awakening. Because in their opinion, that's the only way an addict can recover is if they have, have a, this spiritual awakening. And I put a lot of emphasis, I see a lot of people spending months on writing down their amends or taking inventory of all the horrible shit they did. I mean, if I really wanted to write all that stuff down, I would just use up notebooks. I would, there would be no end to that. So if I got obsessed early in my recovery with writing down all the horrible shit that I did or all the people I'd have to apologize to, I would still be on that step is what I'm saying. So I see a lot of people getting caught in that, spending a lot of time on that step. What really worked for me, I'll let me say it like that, is a heavy emphasis on, I think it's step number 10, where it says, we developed our relationship with God through prayer and meditation. That step really is what saved me. So as I said before, around day 40 or 50, my plan was to appease these people for as long as I had to until I wasn't in trouble anymore. And then I would be back on the dope again. I was just, this was just a waiting game and I was more than waiting to wait for my lover. You know, I would wait for as long as I had to. And it just became uh, mm -hmm. obvious to me that this pattern of thinking was going to just lead me to nowhere. So I literally began every day 
in a very earnest way, I began praying to God. God, I don't know if you're there, but if you're there, please remove this obsession from me. And I did that every day in a very earnest way. And I sought that. And after about, I don't know, a month or two, we were all watching a movie in the group room. And in the movie, a drug dealer came and threw down some dope on the table. And typically, I would have seen this bag of dope and my mind would have been racing about, oh my God, if I had that, what would I do with that? And I saw the dope and I was like repulsed by it. And I recognized instantly that some kind of transformation had happened within me because I wasn't craving this stuff anymore. And I literally started crying. I'm sure I looked like a complete whack job in the middle of the uh, in my rehab. And I told everyone what, what had happened. I said, I, uh, the obsession has been lifted from me. And I was just crying. It was a crying mess. I'm sure my counselors uh, remember that day. So the 12 steps really changed my life. I think it's an amazing set of steps for anyone, whether you're an addict or not. It gives you a good framework upon which to live. Oh, I found that in treatment, Jay, so there needs to be a conversation about the treatment business and why the success rate is so low. So of people that go through a 90-day treatment program like I did, the amount of heroin addicts that stay without relapse for one year period of time is less than 5%. Wow. It just seems like what other business could survive with a 4% success rate, you know? And so I, from very early on, was thinking about ways that I can help other people. And, And, you know, the reality is all I can really do is share what worked for me. I don't have a, any kind of degrees in anything, and I'm not going to be dreaming up any brilliant courses of treatment, but I can tell you what worked for me. One day um, in treatment, it was kind of like a light bulb moment. They showed us a videotape that explained to us what I remember as the hedonic scale. And this is a scale that sort of quantifies a person's joy throughout the day. So I know my Mm -hmm. numbers are off, but just say, for instance, uh, an average guy on an average day, just in a normal mood, he's feeling fine. This number's around 60. If that guy's depressed, that number's around 40. If that guy's really excited or he fell in love, that number's around 100. Well, when that guy does um, crystal meth, that number's 1,200. 1200. So everyone's normal walking wow. around the day, baseline's 80. And then you do this thing and it jacks you up to 1200. You know, we're not talking about from 80 to, you know, 200. We're talking about from 80 to 1200. So this is what we're up against, you know? And that made everything made a lot more sense to me when I looked at it in those terms. And I feel like a little bit more of treatment should be geared towards how to get addicts, how to get us to feel closer to that 1,200 number without using drugs. Like telling someone to never, ever want to feel that 1,200 again, you know, you may have long bouts of abstinence, but it seems, relapse seems inevitable, you know? We're only so strong within ourselves. But I found ways where I could get much closer to that 1200 number without putting external toxins in my body. And mainly it's yoga. That's great. That is amazing. Oh, and then there's one, there was uh, some treatment that I had when I was at residential called EEG therapy. Are you familiar with that at all? Like, does that, do people know about that? No, I'm not familiar with it. This machine is incredible. So, After my last course of therapy, the administrator showed me two images. The first image he showed me, it looked like just ink blotches on a piece of paper. Something as if you'd see, like, it looked like a a Rorschach ink block test kind of thing. And that was the, a scan of my brain that was taken 
on my first day of treatment. And now 16 treatment sessions later, I guess about four months, he showed me a scan after my final treatment session and my brain looked like a fractal of a sunflower from mm. ink blotch mess to sunflower fractal. And literally you play a video game while this software rewires your brain. They hook you up like some things up to your temples and a couple other things they hook up to you. And you're using this software and you're just responding to different sounds and video cues and the session lasts about 20 minutes and it just feels fine. You feel like, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like much is happening. But while you're doing this, the software is rewiring your brain in some kind of Elon Musk kind of Iron Man crazy way. But so that therapy was like some, probably the best thing I had in terms of tools that they were offering. It was just like, it was tangible. I could feel it, but at the very end, I could actually see it with that printout they gave me. So I'm running around trying to tell people all about EEG therapy. It's very scarce. You can't really find it in treatment places in Los in California. Even the, the facility that I went to, they don't even offer it anymore, despite my glorious testimonial. Wow. Sean, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was an honor to have you. You're welcome, Jay. It was nice to be with you. I want to thank Sean Weiss so much for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing his incredible story. Make sure you're subscribed to Stories of Strength, and if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jay Cardiello, and this has been Stories of Strength, personal and inspirational tales that redefine strength, presented by MuscleTech.